Amen. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts. I love that phrase in the course of that, or that third verse of that song we just sang, where it says, And the church of Christ was born, and the Spirit lit the flame. Acts chapter 2, When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall have what? Power. Like flames of fire, the Spirit made himself known in that early, that birth of the church, how this gospel truth of old shall not kneel and shall not faint. By his blood and in his name and his freedom, I am free for the love of Jesus Christ who has resurrected me. That's the church. That's the church. And we think about that and we continue to work our way through the book of Acts. We'll get done in about two years from now, I think, at this rate. <laughs> we may be in prophecy and Jesus will come before we're done with Acts, but that's okay. It'll all work out fine. So how did the early church grow? How, how did it get to this point? How did it transfer from one person to the next, to the next generation, to cultures and languages, and get to Shafter, California in when? 1919? 18? 19? It was last year, right? 100 years? Okay. How did it get there? Well, it started with Jesus. Actually, it started before he came. We know the foundation was laid in the Old Testament. Someday, God would send a Messiah, a Christos, the anointed one. Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, his, his name itself means God is salvation. From the fall of man, which we looked at in, during the Christmas season, the promise was made and the promise was kept. Someday, someone would come and set us free. Freer than any political party ever could, freer than any military power, freer than any economic whatever, freedom from the inside out. And so when Jesus was born of that virgin, as we sang about so many years ago, as he lived his life perfectly on earth, gave himself as that once and for all sacrifice, went into the grave for three days, rose from the dead and said, someday, in fact, not too long from now, disciples, I will send the Holy Spirit. He will come upon you and you will receive power. Power to live lives worthy of the gospel. And he came on that day at Pentecost so many years ago. But as Jesus ministered on earth, we saw him saying to various groups of peoples and individuals, come. Come and see what I'm all about. Come and check me out in a sense. Maybe he didn't quite say it that way, but that's basically what he was saying. Come and, come and see what this Messiah, this person is all about from Nazareth. And some followed him and some didn't. Many didn't, we don't. But those who followed began to grow in their faith. And yet Jesus knew from the beginning that his life on earth, his ministry on earth, was limited. We know it was about 33 years. And so, does church growth just end then? No. He gave us two very distinct commands. Love him, love others as we love ourselves, make disciples. So in other words, he told us to go. To go and to bear the fruit of a life that is filled with the Holy Spirit, that has a characteristic over time of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And so our character changes from the inside out. It's not practicing religion from the outside in so we can be better. No, it's being transformed from the inside out through the renewing of our minds so that we might go and bear fruit but that we might go and make disciples too. Go and make disciples. 
Well, how in the world do we do that? Well, we figure out what will make people come. And every church, every generation has to figure that out because culture is constantly changing. What people are interested in is constantly changing. The commandments never change. The message never changes. But as, as churches like ours face today and say, how do we get people to come? Through the leadership of the Holy Spirit, with the gifts that he's given a group of people like this, he says, hey, let's do this. Let's do that. And so we, we break it into come and see. Come and see what we're all about. Things like fifth quarter. We'll get 200 plus kids, sometimes over 300. Coming into our facility, no preaching, no, no strong message. Just come and see. Come and see what we're all about. Let us love on you. Many of you have participated in that. We're on our second generation, third generation of, of, of come and see events. in uh, No, third generation in Kitty College. Second in, in uh, fifth quarter, I believe. And so we have, we have our kitty college. Come and see. Come and see what the church is all about. We have events that, that are connected to that. But at some point, we want them to come and hear. And so we have things like vacation Bible school and Sunday school and church and all of these things where the word is being taught, preached, modeled, etc. Because they have to hear before they're going to follow. But they have to see before they'll consider following. And they see it mainly through you and through me. No pressure. <laughs> but if you want to reach people for Jesus, you better bear fruit. Because if you're not bearing fruit, why would they want to be what you are? Or any of us, for that matter. And so the responsibility does lie on us, but ultimately it lies with God because he says, I'll give you the Holy Spirit, and he's the one who will bear fruit. And so as we yield our lives up to him, he changes us from the inside out. And what affects that? Sin does. If you're, if you're dabbling with and, and hiding sin in your heart, you're stopping the process that God wants. And the first thing you have to do is repent and confess that. And then the Holy Spirit begins to bear that fruit again. So it's an ongoing growth process. Come, follow, go. As I mentioned last week, our church council is studying a book that's based on these concepts. They're really no different from Wind, Build, and Equip, which we've used for many years because it's the same author, same ministry, and if you studied all the other church growth and church health things that are out there, they're all saying the same thing. There are no secrets to church health or church growth. It's just flat-out hard work. But I'm encouraged that we see a growing prayer movement. Be watching your bulletin for opportunities to pray more as a congregation. The deacons have been modeling that and invite you to come at 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings. Join them for prayer. Pray in your small groups, your Sunday school classes at home by yourself. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Because prayer reminds us that it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. And it's about the Holy Spirit calling people to himself. We don't understand how God's sovereignty works. We just know it does. If he had not tapped on your heart and called you, you wouldn't be here today. But he's also given you a will to say, yes, I will trust Jesus. How those two interact I've yet to read a good explanation that's above my pay grade. <laughs> Only God understands that. Nobody gets paid like him. So we'll leave that up to him. But our responsibilities are these chairs right here. And so as you think about that, as you look about that, what I want us to be thinking of, of through this series is what can we learn from the early church? We're not going to mimic what they did because it's a different time, it's a different culture, but the gospel is the same, the Lord is the same, and he calls us to do essentially the same thing.
things, but in the way that fits where we are today. That is what the book of Acts is essentially about, the history of the early church, how it grew, and what we can learn from it. We're up to chapter 11. Paul has become a Christian, but he's not Paul yet. He's still Saul. Peter, thankfully, is a Christian, and he is spreading the gospel. And last week, we looked at chapter 10, where he was challenged by a vision from God. We'll reread that in chapter 11. And he was called to go to the Gentile world, which he knew about but didn't have a lot of relationship with, cross some boundaries as we talked about them to bring the gospel to a man named Cornelius who was seeking after God, asking for answers. And God said, Peter, I want you to go to this guy about 30 miles away and I want you to tell him about Jesus because he needs to hear. He needs to understand what it means to know me so that he can follow me and then he in turn can go and bear fruit and spread the gospel in his part of the world. That's what it's all about. And that's what we're to be about. Not a social club, not a place just to have activities, although we enjoy the social atmosphere and activities are great, but if we lose our vision, we're losing the purpose of being a church. We are here to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if that wasn't our call, God would save us and take us home probably just like that. But he leaves us here to be living witnesses just as he left the early church. And so we learn from them. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the time you've given us this morning. Thank you for, thank you for the vision of your church. And thank you that through the centuries, you have been faithful 100% of the time to begin a process and to build your church and to reach us even today. And you've chosen to work through people just like us. Sometimes, Lord, we are fired up about Spreading the gospel, and other times we shrink back from fear. Sometimes we live lives worthy of the gospel, and sometimes we allow a variety of things to hinder our growth. So, Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness in spite of us as people, as followers of Christ. And yet you've chosen to work through us because it brings you the most glory. To take people and to change them from the inside out, to be born again, to have new life in Christ is a miracle. And then to use them, Lord, to share the gospel, to invite people to come, come and see, come and hear, come and follow. And as we grow in following Jesus and as we begin to go and bear fruit, may we also go into those relationships that you have appointed for us, those sovereign divine appointments with people, just as someone had one with us might have been a family member or a friend, but somebody shared Jesus with us. So we thank you, Lord, for that. Help us to be faithful in carrying the the torch of the gospel to the next generation and the next generation. Thank you for your hundred years of faithfulness to us, and we trust that as we said in our campaign so many years ago, we're building on your faithfulness and the faithfulness of past generations. May we, too, be found faithful to carry the gospel. Teach us, Lord, Holy Spirit, as we study together. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. New identity. When you hear the word Christian, what comes to mind? And even in a group like this, that I'd say we all pretty much agree, most likely, what a Christian is, we may define it just a little bit different. You know, a follower of Christ, someone who knows Jesus, have Jesus in my heart, 
maybe character traits, they go to church, all those kind of things, and you know, we can elaborate on that, but, but for the early church, Christian, it was critical that they understood what that meant because they were still seen at this point, although it was beginning to change as something, nothing more than just an offshoot of Judaism or the Jewish faith. And a lot of people viewed them as just, oh, it's that group that follows that guy named Jesus and they'll probably, you know, morph back into Judaism at some point and just kind of go away. Well, they, they weren't going to go away. And in fact, in Acts chapter 11, we'll see the word Christian used for the first time in a place called Antioch. It's only used two other times in the scripture and we'll read those too. So only really you think about it, it's kind of amazing. We call ourselves Christian, but the Bible only says it three times. <laughs> Not that it's under, you know, emphasizing it. It just uses other terms to describe what a Christian is, a believer, a follower of Christ, so on and so forth. But when we become a Christian, when you accepted Christ at whatever point that was, or if you have yet to accept Christ, maybe you're still thinking about, you know, I'm coming and I'm hearing and I'm wondering, am I going to follow this guy or not? Well, maybe today is the day that you move from this chair to this chair. I pray that you do. And if you'd like to, I would love to visit with you after the service and just help you understand, or the people in the prayer corner would love to say, this is what it means to follow Jesus. And that can start today. Start that process, start that, that, that journey of, of following Jesus. But when we do that, we are given a new identity. I'll talk about that a little bit more at the end. There's all kinds of scriptures that become true, not because we earn them or deserve them, but because our new identity is found in Christ, as Paul says, at least 40 times in the book of Ephesians. But that new identity includes at least two things that I think we can learn from this passage. First, I think it it, it includes a clear understanding of the gospel. There's another word that we throw around. What is the gospel? We can give little short answers. Sometimes we can give bigger answers. But we've got to have that straight in our minds to make sure we really understand what we're believing. But then what is it that we're trying to share with people who come and see and, and come and hear? Starting in verse 1. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea, more in the southern part of, of Israel, where Jerusalem was, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, and when they say go up, even though he was north of there, he went south, but then he went up in elevation, so sometimes that does get confusing. But when he went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers, those with a Jewish background, criticized him. And said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them? Why would they be critical of that? Because in the Jewish law, there were some very strict dietary guidelines. And so for a good Jew, even one who chose to follow Jesus, they still were very much immersed in that culture and that thinking. And so to step outside of that just seemed like, you can't really love God and not follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Is that the gospel? Peter goes on to explain, no, no, that, that's, let me tell you what God told me. Starting from the beginning, going back to chapter 10, essentially, Peter told them the whole story. I was in the city of Joppa. Joppa was on the western coast of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea, praying, and in a trance I saw a vision. I saw something like a large sheet being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to where I was. 
I looked into it and I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, reptiles, and birds. Then I heard a voice telling me, get up, Peter, kill and eat. In other words, join that group that meets on Tuesdays or no, what time, where do you guys meet? Yeah, uh, Brothers of Pete, join the Brothers of Pete group. That's their key verse, that and then chapter 10. Just kidding. But it is, it is it's their key verse. Rise, kill and eat. I remember, I replied, surely not I, surely not Lord, nothing impure or unclean has ever entered my mouth. In other words, I was a good Jew. I recognized those dietary laws in the Old Testament. The voice spoke from heaven a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. There's something different now, Peter. There's a message that you need to understand and communicate to others. This happened three times, and it was all pulled up to heaven again. Right then, three men who had been sent to me from Caesarea... Caesarea was about 33 miles away, south of, uh, of Joppa. Stopped at the house where I was staying. The Spirit told me to have no hesitation about going with them. These six brothers, he had some witnesses with him, also went with me, and we entered the man's house. He told us how he had seen an angel appear in his house and say, Send to Joppa for, Peter, for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning, referring back to Acts chapter 2, a demonstration of the Spirit's uh, presence by tongues being spoken. Then I remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us, Jewish believers, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now, we might read that and think, what was with these Jewish guys? Why, why would they be so weird about this? Well, if you grew up that way with the culture and believing in the Old Testament law and all that went with it, to step outside of that, even in following Christ, was a huge thing. And so that was, a, that was just a... a a great chasm that had to be crossed, and God used Peter to do that. Now, even though he took care of that in a sense, we know that crops back up, and we'll see that again in Acts chapter 15. So the, some of the tension with the Gentile believers is certainly not over. What was essentially being challenged was the essential nature of the gospel and the fellowship that unites believers. What was being criticized or challenged by these Jewish believers was the essential nature of the gospel. Is it by some kind of activity or works that is done under the auspices of the Old Testament law or any other moral code and Jesus? Or is it simply faith in Jesus? Well, if it's some kind of a moral code, you have to do certain things, then accept Christ or kind of do both at the same time, then that adds some hoops or hurdles people have to go over or through. And that's kind of what was being challenged here. The Jewish believers still held on pretty strongly to some of these rituals that they were to do, circumcision being one and so forth, and Jesus. Paul devotes a whole book, Romans, to, to uh, arguing against that, that it's not by works of righteousness that we do. It's not by good things that we do that earn or deserve salvation. It's through faith in Christ. 
A smaller or a shorter version of that is the book of Galatians, and he's very strongly pointing out some of these who are, at this point, would be called Judaizers. Judaizers was not a compliment. It was those who had a Jewish background and were insisting that you had to keep certain rituals like circumcision or other Old Testament rituals in order to be saved. And Paul says, absolutely not. It's through faith in Christ and him alone. Christ alone. That is the, that's the simple truth of the gospel. And with that then, that brings believers together no matter what our background may be. That's essentially what was being challenged. The Apostle Paul answers those, as I already mentioned, in a couple places. Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, he answers it kind of on a personal level. And he, he's, he's writing to a church that has some challenge. It was a healthy church, Philippi was, but there were some who were trying to get them off the course of the simplicity, in a sense, or the purity of the gospel. So he says this to those who have a Jewish background that seem to be insisting that, no, you have to have a certain, you know, certain activity, certain creed, certain things that you say you do and Jesus. It says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. And it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs. A derogatory term against those who are trying to, uh, to devour people with false teaching. Those evil doers, those mutilators of the flesh, probably a reference to circumcision. For we who are the circumcision, circumcision of the heart, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, in other words, the ability to merit favor with God by good works. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence, in other words, if you want to Let's start comparing stories, then I'll use myself as an example, he says. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, exactly according to the law, of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was considered a very unique tribe because it was the first king that Israel had. So if you were from the tribe of Benjamin, you were just a little, little taller up than you know some other tribe. Maybe Judah was close because of the some of the other connections, but uh, tribe of Benjamin, they were up there. A Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, a purebred. No Gentile blood in his system at all. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. In other words, he was the epitome of the religious man of his day. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. If you would have known Paul before he was a Christian, in many ways we may have admired him. Wow, that guy just, oh, he is so dedicated. He just, he does everything right. He's nice. He does good things. He just, he's proper. He's a good citizen. But he's not saved. Because he thought salvation was being good enough for God. And God eventually confronted him and said, basically, Paul, you'll, you'll never be good enough for me, ever. You can't be. You're fallen. You're sinful from the inside out. And so he goes on and says, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. In other words, he lost his status among the Jewish community. I've lost all things. And I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law or 
good works, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. What is salvation? Faith in Christ, that's it. He goes on in the book of Galatians and writing to them kind of a smaller version of Romans, if you will, in chapter 3, verses 26 to 28. And he says, So in Christ you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized, baptized by the Spirit, being symbolized by believer's baptism, into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what is it that gives us salvation and fellowship? It's all about Jesus. That's it. It's all about Jesus. Now we know from church history, the church has certainly gone various directions through denominational lines and certain emphasis on certain theology, but in Christ we are one. So yes, it's hard sometimes to wrap our brains around why so many denominations, and if you study church history, you can see certain times when certain things were emphasized, and groups went this way and that way, and we just happen to be from a group called the Mennonite Brethren who started during the Reformation, during the Anabaptist period, emphasizing believers' baptism and so forth. But it all comes down to Jesus. It's not denominational. It's not that you're more saved if you're one or the other. It's Jesus. It's all about him and him alone. God uses a variety of groups like us to do what? Invite people to come, follow, and go. That's our calling. Matt Chandler, a pastor and author writes this. He says, the litmus test of whether or not you understand the gospel is what you do when you fail. You run from God and go try to clean yourself up a bit before you come back into the throne room? Or do you approach the throne of grace with confidence? If you don't approach the throne of grace with confidence, you don't understand the gospel. You are most offensive to God when you come to him with all of your efforts when you're still trying to earn what's freely given. Tim Keller, in a book called The Reason for God, says this. Here's the gospel. You're more sinful than you ever dared believe, but you're also more loved than you ever dared hope. The depth of our sin probably more than we care to think about. Every aspect of our life is touched by sin one way or another. But the salvation that is found in Christ because it's from the inside out, because we go through a born-again experience, a new person from the inside out begins to permeate and touch every aspect of our life and eventually begins to cause us to think more and more like Jesus so that all of those things that are touched by sin now are touched by salvation. That's part of the transforming work of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we come and hear, we follow, and then we go, bearing fruit and then sharing that wonderful gift that we have. So our new identity certainly includes and in many ways begins with a clear understanding of the gospel. Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. The second thing, though, it 
involves is a commitment to spread the gospel. Once we understand who we are and who God is and his expectations of us, his commands upon our life, great commission, great commandment, then we then are commanded to spread the gospel. Now, each generation has to figure out what works for them. How do we do that in our culture at this time and so forth? And the early church did things differently than the next generation, next generation, and so forth. Church history bears that out. And here we are today in 2020. A commitment to spread the gospel in verses 19 through 30. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, we see that in Acts chapter 8, traveled as, or chapter 7, as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now let's talk a little bit about kind of the geography. Antioch was north of Jerusalem, about uh, 300 miles. And north of there was Tarsus, about 30 miles. South of there were some, a lot of other coastal towns, but they talk about Phoenicia. Phoenicia is modern-day Lebanon today. Antioch was a large community, uh, probably about 750,000 at the time. About 25,000 of those were Jewish people. It was called the Golden Queen of the East. The Golden Queen of the East. It had a four-mile main road that was paved in marble. Can you imagine four miles of marble? I'd like to have the contract for that. That was probably by slaves, so who cares? Anyway, you know, four miles of marble, but they also had marble columns, and it was one of the only ones in that time that was lit at night. Four miles of a lit road, I'm sure by candle or torch, paved in marble. Wow, what an amazing city. It was also known as a city of wickedness, and immorality, and it was driven by their theology. Because they were a pagan society that believed in many gods, they had one particular shrine, a temple, that emphasized shrine prostitution. Get closer to God by getting closer to a person. Isn't it amazing how theology drives cultures? When someone believes that, then all of a sudden that becomes part of their lifestyle. So that's where the church began to take hold. So you can imagine being in that culture. Tarsus, where Paul was at the time and was from, was about another 100 miles from Antioch by sea, about 200 by land. Now it also talks about the cities of uh, Cyprus and Cyrene. Cyprus was actually an island off the northern coast of Israel. That's where Barnabas was from. We'll see him in just a minute. And then Cyrene was on the northern tip of Africa. You remember Simon of Cyrene? He helped carry the cross of Jesus. That's the Cyrene that it's talking about there. So you've got the church spreading out from in Acts chapter 7. If we go back to Acts chapter 8, we read these words talking about the church being scattered. It says, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem after the stoning of Stephen. All except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off both men and women 
and put them in prison. So when that persecution occurred, Luke is kind of looking backwards, these people took off and went different places. My guess is they probably went places where they knew people because they needed a place to stay. They might have had some family or friends and the Jewish presence was all over those areas. But as they went to those homes, as they found places of shelter, some went to Jewish people and said, I got to tell you about Jesus. Others went to Gentiles. We're not sure what motivated them. Maybe they just realized, hey, we're not going to just hold on to this thing for Jewish people. It needs to go to the Gentiles too. So the scattered believers from Jerusalem went to all of these different places around the Mediterranean Sea. News of the gospel in Antioch caused the church leaders to send Barnabas. We'll read about that in a minute. He found Saul in Tarsus, about 100 miles from where he was, and he helped people, or he helped disciple these new believers. Verse 22, news of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas, who was from Cyprus, to Antioch, not too far from that area. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, Barnabas was, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord in that immoral, wicked city. God was at work there. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus, about 100 miles by sea, or 200 around the, by land up in that northern part of uh, Israel, looking for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, when we think of Christian, we think of, you know, someone who follows Christ, and that's, that's true, that's accurate. But if we want to get real technical, let's turn to someone like Dr. Stanley Toussaint. In his commentary on Acts, he says, talking about the disciples first being called Christians at Antioch, he said, the ending in, I-A-N, means belonging to the party of. Belonging to the party of. Thus, Christians, I-A-N, that the S, were those of Jesus' party. The word Christians is used only two other times in the New Testament. We'll look at that in just a moment. The significance of the name emphasized by the word order in the Greek text is that people recognize Christians as a distinct group. The church was more and more being separated from Judaism. Christians. I'm not going to take a poll here, but I'm assuming most, if not all of us who are 18 and above, are registered to vote. If not, you should be. I'll just put that little political ad in there for a second. And uh, you can register however you want, Republican, Democrat, nonpartisan, but let me encourage you to participate in the system that we are still free to participate in. Christian. That should be our first party. More important than any political system, more important than any economic system, Christian. Of the party of Jesus, followers of Christ, Jesus himself. The believers in Antioch first were called that. In Acts chapter 26, we also see that term being used. Acts chapter 26, verse 28, maybe not in a complimentary way, but more in a way of recognition. Then Agrippa said to Paul when he's on trial, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? 
to become part of the party of Jesus. Also, we see in the book of 1 Peter, Peter writes this as he's encouraging this church that is experiencing some challenges. Chapter 4, verse 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, as of the party of Jesus, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. Christian. It says then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And at Antioch they were called Christians. During this time some prophets came down from Jerusalem. Again down in elevation to Antioch which was northwest of them. One of them named Agabus stood up and through the spirit predicted a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea, in the southern part of the country. This they did, sending their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. And history would say that during that time under Claudius, there were a number of famines, not one uh, completely covering the Roman Empire, but different regions, including that part that was prophesied about. The early church seemed to understand fairly quickly that they were of the party of Jesus. They had a new identity. They were Christians. They also seemed to understand the commitment to spread the gospel. And they did it as they went. In fact, the Great Commission where it says, as you are going, make disciples. In other words, as you go about the highways and byways and activities of life, have your radar up for those that may be looking for answers, that maybe would be willing to come and see or come and hear, that might be ready to follow. And as we trust God's sovereignty to prepare them, he's saying, be part of the process. As you were part of the process of someone sharing with you, be part of the process of inviting, of, of living that invitational lifestyle. In 2016, the Billy Graham Center commissioned a survey of 2,000 Americans, 2,000 Americans, and they asked them questions, and they targeted people that would be considered unchurched, didn't go to church anywhere, had no church affiliation, and they asked them about their perception of Christians and Christianity. Here's what they found out. 42% of the unchurched thought that Christianity is good for society. 33% admire their Christian friend's faith, and here's the one that really stuck with me. And up to 67% said that they would be willing to attend a church event. 67%. Group Publishing came out with a book a few years ago called Irresistible Evangelism. It tells the story of Jan, a, a staffer with Athletes in Action. When I was in college, we used to scrimmage athletes in action. If you're not familiar with them, they were a, a sports ministry uh, with a variety of sports of, uh, of Campus Crusade for Christ, or crew as they call it now. And at least on the wrestling end of things, I used to tell my friends, wrestling those guys was like trying to hit a fastball off of Nolan Ryan. Good luck. They were really, really good. I still have some scar tissue on my neck from one of the guys that, I'm not sure if he was trying to pin me or kill me, but it hurt. <laughs> So they, Jan, with AIA, went to a conference on how to reach people for Christ. And the thing they focused on mainly was listening. They said, you know, maybe we do 
try to do too much talking or we're worried about what to say. That's a common fear probably all of us have. And the emphasis on the conference was, well, try listening a lot and what you need to say will probably come to the top. So after the conference, she and some of her, of her other teammates went to, uh, they were staying in a hotel and went down to the hot tub to relax and two young high school girls joined them. And it wasn't very long before one of them, who was quite talkative, started talking about how excited she was to go to a Wiccan gathering. Wiccan is, is like an offshoot of, it's like witchcraft and it's not good stuff. You don't want to be involved with that. But she was really excited about attending. So here's what Jan said. She says, normally we would have tried to counter the girls' ideas, but we decided to listen instead. I said something like, wow, you're really, you sound like you're excited about this. This was all the encouragement she needed to launch into a five-minute explanation of why she was so attracted to neo-pagan rituals. The bottom line was that she'd had a really traumatic time in high school, and the Wiccas accepted her. She said, I've gone through so many hard times trying to make it through high school that I'd probably be in therapy for the rest of my life. Jan says, I tried to mirror back what she said. It's hard for you to even imagine a future where you'd be free from all the pain you've gone through. What came next completely floored me with a film of tears starting to form in her eyes and with complete sincerity in her voice, she said, sometimes I wish I could be born all over again. I'd really like to start over from scratch. After a long pause, my friend asked if she would really like to be born again. And she said, yes, I really would. So I wonder how many people are all around us, in our schools perhaps, in our places of business, in our neighborhoods, maybe even our own families, that deep down inside wish they could just start life all over. And God is saying to each of us, who do you know? Who can you listen to? Listen to their heart, what they're saying. Listen to what they're not saying. And are we ready to give an answer? I'd like to start life over again. That's interesting, because Jesus said in John chapter 3, you can be born again. You can become a brand new person and start life over. We have the answer to a world that is asking a lot of questions about life. I guess the question is for us, what are we going to do about that? What is God calling us to do? Let me invite the worship team to come as we conclude, conclude our time. You see, when a person trusts in Christ, they gain both a new identity as a child of God, but also a new purpose for life in sharing the good news of Jesus with others. Living out our new identity and sharing with others is done primarily in the context of established relationships. The gospel travels primarily through relationships. But it's important that we know who we are. We are Christians. We're of the party of Jesus if you know Jesus. If you don't, you can know him today. And with that knowledge then and that new identity then, we also take on a new responsibility. Represent me to a world that is asking questions like this young girl in the hot tub who says, man, I just, I just want to start life over. Well, she can. She can. Let me invite you to stand as we sing our closing song. Who am I? 
Who are you? By faith in Jesus, a child of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time you've blessed us with today. Help us to carry the truth of the gospel in our hearts. And help us, Lord, not to shy away from the responsibility of carrying that gospel to a lost world. Help us to be creative and follow you, Holy Spirit, in finding ways to help people to come. Coming might be coming to our homes. Coming might be coming to an event here. Coming might be coming to something that is common to our community. But Lord, we need, to be, we need your help to, to find ways to help people not only come and see, but also come and hear. So that they might have the opportunity to follow, to follow Jesus. And I pray for everyone here today that our following you would in some ways never end. We'd continue to follow your leadership and your guidance into the things you call us to do and to be. Help us to always remember who we are. We're Christians. We're of the party of Jesus. You've given us a new name and a new identity. May we carry it in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name.